So we're going we're gonna to begin our time together with a bit of time travel. So um, this is, uh, I want to show you guys a picture of a typical layout for, this is a wealthy first century home. And um, you can see you can see in addition to like this open air atrium and everything, there's like a whole bunch of different rooms, um, not just for living, but for working. And you're like, is that one family? Well, not quite. There's the family, there's, there's people who work there, employees, there's uh, like some front uh, shops that are open to the street and things like that. So um, one, one major difference between homes then and homes now is that it would be a really rare thing for somebody to, quote, like, go to work uh, by leaving their home and going somewhere else. Commuting, not really a thing for them. More often than not, the, the first century home uh, was where you lived and worked alongside a bunch of other people, not, not just your family, not even just your extended family, but other employees employees and family and all these people all living and working together in this kind of like little micro economy, micro residence, like all of this happening together. So just for a minute, uh, imagine the people you live with. Now imagine the people you work with. Uh, wh what, if, what if you were around them 24-7? Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> <laughs> So these, uh, these first century homes, as you can imagine, really needed a lot of organization because, man, there's a whole lot going on there and, you know, you kind of need some rules for how things go. And so these first century homes, you know, these gigantic ones, but even the smaller ones, they were held together by a cultural household code of conduct. And uh, just different statements had been made uh, throughout the years about here's how all the different relationships in these homes uh, should work. Here's how it goes. So if you have a Bible, let's all turn in Ephesians 5 because in Ephesians 5, we're going to see a household code at work. But the, the first century household codes were about three different relationships. So let me hear you say husbands and wives, fathers and children, masters and slaves. So in the first century household, there was just one person holding all the power in all three of those relationships. The husband, the father, the master, this was one person, the patriarch. And we've heard that word thrown around in the last couple of months and years, haven't we? Yeah. So this, this patriarch, uh, husband, father, master, this one person had absolute power over his wife, over his children, and over his slaves. He was the only one in, in culture, in society, that was considered truly human. His wife, his children, his slaves, they weren't human. They were, in society's eyes, uh, property to be used however he saw fit, however he wanted to run his household. And Roman law protected this man and protected this whole system. There was no room in society for hashtag smash the patriarchy or anything like that. No way. Because this system was the glue that held the Roman Empire together. If you step out of line as a slave, as a son, as a wife, it would cost you dearly to step out of line. And uh, I, I imagine, uh, I mean, we're, we're going through this book of, of this letter to this Ephesian church, new Christians, they're a cultural minority. 
Um, they're, they're a small group of people in these big, gigantic, impressive urban centers. I, I imagine there were times when those first Christians were tempted to be fatalistic about the way things were, where they just looked around at all kinds of broken systems. I'm sure there were times when they just got so intimidated, thinking like, who, who are we to change things? Yeah, like we're, we're part of this Jesus movement, but so many people don't know who Jesus is. So many people don't recognize this or, or believe in this. Uh, I get funny looks from people if they find out what I'm all about. Who, who am I to change anything? We're this tiny group of, of unimpressive and unimportant people. Like what could we possibly do to change these things, these systems that, that seem so broken but are so deeply entrenched and, and supported? Have, have, you ever, have you ever been faced with a broken system and just felt really intimidated as you looked at it to go, what, what could I possibly do to bring any kind of change here? Maybe um, some of us in our, in our workplace, the workplace culture, you're just like, I'm, I'm one person, what could I possibly do? Some of us are fighting an uphill battle with addiction. Some of us are trying to leave the old person behind, but the old person is really putting up a fight as we're trying to become the, the, the new person. Uh, some of us, some serious family drama, and just there's a whole culture and a whole system there, and you're like, man, I'm, I'm one person. What could I possibly do? This, this morning, the Holy Spirit was whispering to that Ephesian church, those first Christians, but also is whispering to us that the tomb is empty, which means that the broken systems, they are not eternal, even if they feel very well established. The empire is coming down. The broken systems are going to come down, but they're not going to come down in the way that you and I would naturally think to bring something like that down. For, for those first Christians all over the empire, the Spirit was stirring something in these Jesus communities that was going to change everything, and it's so surprising because of, you know, how small and, and unimpressive they were, that, but Jesus was doing something under the surface that was going to change everything, and, and God wants to do even more of that this morning in, in our lives and in all these other realms where we find ourselves, where there's these, these broken systems. So uh, in Ephesians 5, verse 18, that's where it all kicks off. 518, if you have it in the Bible, Paul commands us, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and in the original language, this is, this is a command, be filled with the Spirit. He's not asking you, he's telling you, you gotta do this, be filled with the Spirit. And then, Everything in verse 19 to 21 that follows are the results of that filling. Be filled with the Spirit, and then all these things are going to happen in the lives of somebody who's filled with the Spirit. Some, some of our Bible translations will make verses 19 to 21 sound like a command, where it'll say like, hey, be thankful and sing these songs in the Spirit. And it makes it sound like a command, but these are actually results. They're the results of, the, of a life that's being transformed by the Spirit of God. And uh, the last result in the whole list of things is really surprising. Um, it, it, overall, it looks like this. Um, there's a command, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, and then 19 to 21, there's all these results where we're speaking life and gratitude to each other and to Christ, but then the really surprising one, as a re the, the result of a life that's filled with the Spirit is that we are now submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then, 
and that verses uh, 22 through 6 verse 9 um, is just a big gigantic expansion of that just that one result submitting to one another everything that follows shows you what it looks what spirit-led submission to one another looks like and and it touches all these different realms all these different relationships so you see the kind of the structure of how that works so um here's what's going on paul writes to these christians in ephesus to announce that in jesus there's a new household code and there really has to be uh, for, the, for this new way of life, it just, it's just so different from how the empire was set up. It's so different from how these other relationships were set up. So there, there has to be a new household code if the Spirit is doing something new, if Jesus is doing something new. So the way this works is that the, the, the Holy Spirit comes into the life of a believer and works this revolution in the human heart, so much so that as a result of this filling, new humans start to live according to a new household code with all these different relationships. A new household code where all of us, all of us are submitting to one another out of reverence for Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Um, now, uh, some, some of us have, have more or less background with, uh, with, with church settings with, around the Christian faith, and so we can hear that word submit, and it's like, whew, okay, where are we going with this? Um, it's actually, it's, it's the most beautiful word, and I, I just really hope that this morning um, God could even reorient us around this word and give us a fresh understanding where it, be, it becomes good news. It becomes the best thing in the world versus something that maybe we have been commanded instructed, even just bossed around, shut down. Hey, keep your mouth quiet. Don't question this. Just submit. Just turn off your brain. Turn off who you are and just get in line. That's absolutely not what's going on with, with this word and with these relationships. So I hope this morning becomes a really beautiful thing. Um, with, when you read that word submit, the word picture is to stand under. You want to try saying that? Stand under. Uh, it's hupo tasso is in the in the Greek to stand under somebody else. Um, if you if if anybody had like a cheer or dance background, it's the human pyramid. There's these folks, uh, Axis Dance. Uh, they do uh, they 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 have a really unique dance community where they for for all all different types of bodies, um, they choreograph uh, dance. Uh, for all types of bodies, it's beautiful. I'm sure it's extremely complicated to think through how to choreograph all these things, but when you watch it, it's just amazing. And there's, all, there's hupotasso, there's this standing under happening all the time. And so in Jesus' new family, it's supposed to look a bit like this, where we're standing under one another. All of us, all of us are standing under Jesus Christ because he is the head of this new household. He's the one who's purchased it with his own blood. He's made the sacrifice. He's, he's the one who's established this new thing. He's the chief servant of this house. He's the one who's, who's set this thing up. So he's the head of this household, but then all of us are also standing under one another. And believe it or not, this is what's going to bring down the empire. Uh, before I go any further, though, I just, I just really want to connect things for us in ways that maybe we have baggage with some of these verses in the past where, where there's been things that have, where it's just like, we, we might, there might be some things that need to get uprooted or removed or reoriented, and uh, that's something that the Holy Spirit can do. So let's just invite the Holy Spirit to be the teacher and for the, for, to, to illuminate what's going on here and to connect it to our lives. So if you would, please pray with me. Spirit of God, uh, I just pray that you would uh, cause these words to leap off the page and come alive in our hearts like never before. 
May the words of my mouth and may the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Be free in this space to be the teacher, to illuminate these words, and to connect them to our lives, Lord God. We need you to be the teacher. We need you to convince us that the way of Jesus really is the best way, because there's so many other systems that are bigger and so much more established and, and, and entrenched, and it can be intimidating to think about trying something new. But Jesus, we really want to believe that you are brilliant, that you are the smartest person who ever lived, and you really have the best way for, for human life. We want to trust that because we're so used to all these other systems that are about getting ahead, using whatever we have to focus on ourselves and to better our own lives, that this other way, it's so different. It takes so much getting used to, and so we need you, Spirit, to come and fill us so that the results of our life is that you're changing us, you're making us new, that we really can try out this new way to be human and find that you're making us human again. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the way that's going to bring down the empire, standing under. And why is that? Because when, when you and I stand under, it's so contrary to the way other world systems are set up. When, when you and I stand under, we effectively stop holding up the old structure. We take our hands out of it, and we're no longer supporting that system. And when people start to remove themselves from that system and stop holding it up, after a while, the old way has no support, and it, it just begins to collapse. And that's exactly what happened in that first Jesus movement, and I believe it's what needs to happen again today. Jesus' new way is under, not over. That's how the old way comes crashing down. And so we're going to walk through this new household code and kind of see what, how this worked out in Paul's day, but then it's also going to be speaking to us into all different kinds of relationships in our lives too. But we got to remember these things are not commands. These things are the results of a, a life that is filled with the Spirit. It is, it is impossible for you and I to put ourselves underneath somebody else and to try out this new way without the filling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Because just to, to who we are, our, 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 our natural self-oriented lives, this way doesn't make sense. We really need the Spirit's filling and empowerment to trust, okay, Jesus' way is better. So uh, I would say, though, if talking about one of these different relationships starts to kind of touch a nerve for you, um, just breathe a quiet prayer. Just say, come, Holy Spirit. Why don't you try praying that even now? We can say that out loud. Come, Holy Spirit. So if, if one of these things is touching a nerve, just go, okay, Holy Spirit, uh, uh, you're speaking to me. This is messing with me. I need you. I need you to apply this to my life. I need you to convince me that this is the best way and the truest way. So we're going we're gonna to begin at the end of the household code because I think it's chapter 6, verse 5, if you're in a Bible. Chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and respect and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Okay. So if any relationship in the Roman Empire required a revolution, uh, how about slavery? I mean, come on. Why, why doesn't Paul have stronger words for masters here? 
why doesn't Paul call those first Christians to just get out there and storm the slave market? Why, why do we not hear about that? I think it's because the situation in Ephesus is not what we think it is. We hear that word slave and we bring our own ideas to that and we gotta do a little bit of time travel to, to fully appreciate and understand what this word uh, means and everything around it because in, in the Roman Empire, there was actually a massive spectrum for slavery. At the one end of, of, of things, yes, there were forms of slavery that were absolutely oppressive and dehumanizing and evil but then, as strange as it sounds, kind of at the other end of the spectrum, there were also forms of slavery that were incredibly empowering. And I know that sounds like a, con a contradiction, that, that a, a slave position could be empowering. And it's because this word can mean so many things, and we tend to just picture one version of it. But um, many people sold themselves into slavery in, these, in, the, in those days as a way to move up in the world. And I know, sounds like a contradiction, sounds a little weird. Sla selling yourself into slavery is a way to move up in the world, but yes, you could sell yourself uh, into slavery temporarily as a way to pay off debt. Um, it's like a student loan debt. You take out a student loan, and, which is kind of like slavery, you know, to uh, Sally Mae. And then, um, but then when your loan to Sally Mae is paid off, you're free to treat yourself again, and it's nice. And you're like, wow, that feels great. But you were temporarily um, enslaved. If you, if you really think about it, to, to this company. Until things are really paid off, there really is kind of a, you don't see it, but there's definitely, you know, a chain around your ankle limiting your life and your decisions. Some people did that as a way to pay off debt, um, but it was temporary. But here's the thing. Other people sold themselves into slavery permanently of, the, of their own choice. Nobody else made this decision for them. They sold themselves into slavery permanently, and it was a way to move up in the world. If you sold yourself to an important household, uh, a rich and influential household, you could, as um, a member of that household, as an employee, you could hold a lot of power and you could carry a lot of influence. There were even slaves who you would say were more powerful and more influential than people who were free in those days. And I know it sounds contradictory, it's weird, it's just not what we're used to when we think of this word slave. But it was a lot like applying to maybe a major corporation with the aim of getting a really good job that's going to bring a better life for yourself. And then you have this great job for as long as you brought prosperity to your boss. Now, it's different for us because we might jump around from jobs to jobs and hang in one position for two or three years and then maybe move to another company or another city. But in those days, people would, they would look for a household to sell themselves into for employment. And you could be very powerful. You could be very influential. You could really move up the ladder, uh, so to speak. Now, I know it's not what we think when we hear the word slave. But just know, in those days, there was a spectrum. And depending on the letter from Paul that we're reading, there's different modes of slavery that were happening in those different towns. And so it's kind of like listening on the other end. Like if you ever listened in on somebody else's phone conversation, but you can only hear their voice and you can't really hear what the other person is saying on the other line, it's kind of like that with reading a New Testament letter. You can only hear what Paul's saying, and so you have to kind of just work with whatever he's saying to kind of put some pieces together to understand what's happening on the other line. And so based off of what Paul's saying, where he uses words like favor and wholeheartedly and reward and favoritism, it sounds like Paul is speaking to the type of slavery where you can move up in the world. Because in Ephesus, uh, it seems like employers and employees, they were tempted to work this system in a way to benefit themselves, 
to use people to get ahead. And so Paul is saying, hey guys, we, we can't be that, that way in, in, in these relationships. Otherwise, him talking about rewards and favor and things like that, if, if, if we're talking about a, an oppressive slavery system, him talking about favor and rewards doesn't really make sense. Does that make, you, you with me on that? Like, he, he would have different words for them, words like what we might read in like First Peter or things like that, where, where people are, are it's a, it really is an oppressive situation. But if you're, if you're in a good situation, but maybe you can manipulate it and use it to benefit you, then talk about favor and rewards and favoritism and things like that. Then that starts to make sense. It's like, oh, that kind of sounds like how things go in certain work cultures where you can use the system to, to benefit you or to push other people down. So Paul is calling up this new way that Jesus taught us in, Math, in, uh, in Mark 10. Uh, this is what, what it says. It says, calling his disciples to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the nations, they lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, um, yeah, just think about the kind of week or month that you've had at work. Um, if, you, if you're employed, uh, have you ever been in the crossfire of a turf battle at work where it just, you didn't even realize, you just walked right into uh, a battle happening between different people at work, walking right into a minefield where you're like, oh man, what's going on? Um, have, have, you, have you had the experience of people jockeying for greater influence in the company? And, and the way for them to get ahead was leveraging whatever influence they had to get ahead. And it meant forming tribes, forming alliances, leaving other people out, um, even talking badly about other people, or talking really well about yourself as a way to kind of pump yourself up in the system. Or have you, has, have you had the experience of, you know, People, it's almost like they feel like they need to remind you who's really in charge, who really has power here, and not to cross them. And if you do, they lord it over you, either passively, aggressively, or, or aggressively. Um, have you had this experience at work, in your work relationships, where it got, it got weird? It got weird. Many of us are probably smart enough to know how to play that game. We would know who to align ourselves with. We would know how to say things, how to phrase things. Maybe our way is to just kind of keep our, our head down and, and wait for the storm to blow over, blow over. Others of us, we would know how to work that system so that we could, we, we could come out ahead. But this is not Christ's way. Jesus says, not so among you, not so among my people. That old way of being human, Paul says, is over. It's done. Lording over people is the way of unkingdomized humanity. Paul's telling us about this new humanity that Jesus is bringing in, and standing under is the way of kingdomized humanity. Jesus' new humanity, it's not over, it's under. The great ones don't aspire to, to, to be rulers who are going to dominate everybody. They aspire to be servants who are going to look out for the interests of others. Those are the great ones in Jesus' kingdom. And it's a totally different mindset. It's a totally different way to go to work. But in Jesus, Paul wants us to know the old way of doing things and relating to people in our workplace relationships, it's over. It's done. So in our workplace relationships, when you see people climbing over other people, know that that is somebody who does not have the Holy Spirit of God at work in their life. 
because the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in somebody's life is that they would place themselves as a servant to, to serve and, and benefit everybody else, and they're not just looking out after, after their own needs. But lording it over people, Paul wants us to know, it has no place in Jesus' coming kingdom. Christian bosses and Christian employees stand under the people in their workplace environments to lift them up, to look after their interests. But um, let's, uh, let's, let's just pause. We, from time to time, we, we'll, we'll do this and just kind of have time to, to check in with each other about where we're at with this, where this hits home for, for us. Um, so here's a question that maybe, like, you can get together with, like, two or three other people uh, to talk about. Um, so all around us, we see people living out the old way of lording it over people. In, in our workplace relationships, things we're seeing in the news these days, we, we, we see the lording it over people thing happening all the time. But let's bring this into our own lives. Is there a situation you're facing where you might feel, well, you, might, you might come off looking weak or foolish if you try out Jesus' new way of standing under people and serving people? Because this is definitely different. All right, is there a situation you can think of where you go, man, I, if I tried that, I'm not sure how that would go if I, if I did it Jesus' way, okay? So uh, let's talk about this in groups of like two, three, four people, and then I'll, I'll, I'll bring you back. Ready? Go for it. Okay, so now we're in Ephesians 6, verse 1, children and fathers, and uh, maybe you have a Bible translation that says parents or uh, mothers and fathers, and you go, hey, this is a really gender-exclusive language. Um, if you're a mom, don't feel left out. Um, let's remember, Paul is speaking to a system in which there is one person holding all the cards. There is one person who is master and who is father and who is husband, and here's the thing, if this revolution gets a hold of his heart, everybody's going to benefit. And these, these letters are being read, read out loud to a Jesus community, and so there's accountability as Paul is saying, you guys, this is how we're going to do things in our households. So if there was a master, a father, um, a husband in the, in the room, everybody knows, okay, he heard from Paul how it's supposed to be now uh, in, in these new Jesus communities. And so if the revolution touches his heart, everybody benefits because he was, the one hold, he was the one at the top of the pyramid. So here's, here's what it says in 6 verse 1. Mother and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So here's the thing. In the first century, children didn't obey their fathers in the Lord. Your dad was the source of your inheritance, so who cares about honoring him? Just do what he says, keep him happy, fall in line, and then you'll benefit after he's dead. That's really, that was your relationship with him. No warmth, no intimacy, nothing like that. And then fathers didn't bring up their children in the training and, and instruction of the Lord. In those days, your children were your workforce. You had a, a bi nice big family so that you could get things done and you had an inheritance and your name would be established in the community. So who cares if you exasperated them? Who cares if you broke them down with your words and with your fists? Who cares? They exist to maintain the family business and you're the king in your house. So who cares about this? Who cares about how, how they're going to feel, how they're going to develop? Depending on your culture, uh, you and I receive different messages from our parents about what, what the good life is and, and what, what, what the purpose of our life should be and what our aims should be. There are parents who want their kids to be happy no matter what. 
And so for them, they want their kids to have everything they could ever possibly want, sometimes because they didn't have that, and they want something different for their kids. And they feel like a successful parent when they hear their grown-up kids talking about all the vacations that they're going on and all the great things that they're able to afford. They feel like, I did it. I was, I was a successful parent because my kids are happy. There, there are parents who want their kids to be wealthy no matter what. And so you, as, as, as my son, as my daughter, you have uh, three choices. You can study medicine, you can study engineering, or you can study business. Those are your choices. I uh, hope you find one that's a good fit. And you're going to know that I'm pleased with you if you get good grades that help you to get that good job so that you can be wealthy. And then I feel like a good parent. I feel like I did my job. But Paul says spirit-filled fathers and children now relate to each other in the Lord. And this changes everything. It changes our, our, our priorities for our children. It changes our priorities in our relationship with our parents. For, for, for all of us children, if it hasn't happened already, the day is coming when our dad's brain and body is going to fail him. And, and his, we're just not going to be able to have the same kind of relationship that we had. Things are going to change. But his worth in the Lord didn't come from what he could do for us. Out of reverence for Jesus, Christian children don't use their parents just for what they can get out of them. And for all of the parents, uh, we need to be thinking about the messages that we're sending our kids about the good life. Or if you have nieces and nephews who really look up to you, if you have younger kids in your life who look up to you, what, what are we telling them about the good life? What's coming out of our mouth, but also what are they seeing in us? Because we're sending messages all the time. Is, is our highest goal for the next generation that they follow Jesus, or is our highest goal for them material happiness or a high-paying job or both? Because we can say some things, but our life could be sending a totally different message for them about here's how you'll know if I'm happy with you, if I'm pleased with how your life is turning out. We, we can't control the messages that were passed down to us, but what messages are we going to pass along to the next generation about the good life? Many, many of us have um, some difficult, some pretty tricky uh, parent-child dynamics at work in our life, and, and, and some of us need to actually spend more time here where you would go, I, I actually need this sermon to be like a 20-part series because we got to go, we got to go deep with this. Um, some of us would really benefit uh, from some reading resources, and those are at the bottom of the sermon discussion guide that's on your chair, and there's a couple different categories there for maybe a, 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 a book if you're a reader and if you'd be helped in that way. Um, for others of us, it might be time to seek out a counselor or a therapist to help us heal and get untangled from some things, some, some messages that we haven't been able to break free from so that we can be fully human and we can fully follow Jesus. So, uh, if you would, turn to your neighbor and tell them, I've got issues. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> All right, and now, uh, husbands, wives and husbands, chapter 5, verse 22. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church stands under Christ, so also wives should stand under their husbands in everything. And we're going to speak to this, but it's connected to some more results of being filled with the Spirit. The, the evidence that the Spirit is at work in male-female relationships doesn't just speak to the wife in the relationship. Spirit-filled husbands love their wives like Jesus loved the church. And how exactly did Jesus do that? 
Paul tells us in verse 25, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but also holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You and I might not see immediately how revolutionary this was, but in the first century household, this was revolutionary because a woman did not respect her husband. She didn't. She might fear his wrath. She might have kept her head down and fallen in line, but, but did she respect him? Did she admire him? Did she honor him? No. And why not? Because uh, this is reciprocal, buddy. And if you, you don't love me like you love yourself, you don't care for me like you care for your own body. Your husband used you. Your husband owned you. Husbands, love your wives. Back then, husbands didn't love their wives. Your wife existed to make you children and to get things done around the home. There was no love. There was no service. There was no desire to bring joy to her heart and put her needs ahead of your own. And if you had a sexual urge, your wife and any of your servants were at your disposal, anytime, anyway, and nobody would question you, and Rome would back you up. But there were also temple prostitutes, especially in Ephesus, to where this letter is written. In the Ephesian temple of Artemis, there were thousands of shrine prostitutes, and that was how the patriarch would seek prosperity and success in his home through sympathetic magic. By worshiping the goddess Artemis through sex, it was a way to say, may this also be so in my home. Bring me prosperity. Bring me success. And wow, what a great way to worship, you know? Just like this totally meets your, your most selfish base desires. Oh, I'm just, I'm, just a, I'm, just a good, I'm just a good Artemis worshiper. I'm just doing my part for the, for the community. Wow. Yeah, really, buddy? A wife, a wife couldn't respect a man like that. No way. She despised her husband for it. And so at the same time, in the Roman Empire, there was this counter-feminist movement moving through the empire called the New Roman Wife. The New Roman Wife said, my husband sleeps with whoever he wants, well, then I will too. I will wear my hair down, I will dress the part uh, that lets everybody know I am sexually available, I am powerful. We see like in 1 Timothy, Paul writing against women who are kind of bringing this kind of cultural baggage into the church by how they're dressing to say, no, 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 this is going to wreck the whole thing, ladies, if you do this. But the new Roman wife said, my husband doesn't see it, but I got a lot to offer. And so I'm going to use my sexuality to take my power back and I'm going to stick it to my husband. Not so among you, Jesus says. There is a better way to be feminist there is a better way to be a man. There is a new way for us to recover our full humanity for all the ways that we've been abused, misused, oppressed. The way is not to fight fire with fire. It, Jesus has a, a whole other way to bring this whole system down, not pushing others down so that we can gain an edge, but instead wives standing under their husbands by respecting them, 
honoring them, admiring them, trusting and following them like Jesus, how, we, how the church trusts and follows Jesus, and husbands who are standing under their wives by loving them to the point of the sacrifice of their own life. There's, there's, he, he, he says, your model is Jesus who died for his, his church, his bride. That's, that's, that's what it looks like for a husband to love his wife. It gets to the, there, there, you might physically put your life on the line for your wife, but there's also just all kinds of daily ways that we can die for our spouses, to just, to die to ourselves, to die to our selfishness, and put her needs first. That's our model. It's totally brand new, but then I just, also just like this, um, just take a moment, if you got the biblical text in front of you, between wives and husbands, uh, if, you, if you see the section there, just by sheer word count, uh, who has the most to learn about Jesus's new way to be human? The wives or the husbands? Just by, just by word, word count, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because when you have been, when you've been the one with all the power, you need the most instructions to learn a new way to be human. There's just, uh, there's just apparently less for the wives to learn, <laughs> just by sheer word count. This, this, yes, this, this spirit-driven revolution in human relationships is going to unravel the Roman Empire from the inside. It won't happen immediately, but over time, it's going to break this down because you stop holding up relationships has already been pioneered by Jesus. Paul is just describing what Jesus has already laid out for us and demonstrated for us, and he's just carrying it into these other relationships. This revolution doesn't mean that we take up a weapon. It means that we take up a towel. And uh, Joyce, would you mind? Can you join me? All right. It's it right here. So um, on the night before uh, Jesus was going to go to the cross, um, he had a very special meal with his, uh, with his followers. He just took time to slow down. And uh, at the end of the meal, he uh, got up from the table and he took off his, uh, his outer garment, and he got a bin, a, a, a wash basin, and uh, wa- filled it with water, and got a towel, and he kneeled before his disciples, and he began to wash their feet, one at a time. And uh, this was, I'm sure, awkward. I'm sure there were lots of moments, you know, there's no, there's no, background music playing yes yes joyce says and I, I i wonder i wonder too like is it is it is it harder to wash somebody's feet or is it is it harder to let your feet be washed by somebody else i think uh, joyce and i might have very different answers for this but um on the night so then he he's he he begins to to wash their feet with with the, with the towel with the, the water He's, he's just about to go to the cross, and he wants them to know, guys, before I leave you, this is, this is what I, uh, I want to do in the world. This is what I want to see in my followers. And so Jesus says, um, you, you call me teacher. Well, he asks them, like, do, you guys, do you guys understand what I've, I've just done for you? And the answer is probably no. We, we have no clue what just happened there, Jesus. But Jesus says, um, Jesus says, you call me teacher, you call me the Lord. And you're right, that's what I am. And he says, if I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, then you also need to wash one another's feet. And um, notice what Jesus doesn't say. 
he doesn't say, okay, guys, I just washed your feet. Now let's swap places. I'll get in the chair. You wash my feet. He doesn't say that. He says, I've washed your feet, and I'm the boss, so now I want you to wash one another's feet. And I just think, I don't know, think about, think about, think about who, who Jesus, what he meant to them, what he, what he meant to those first disciples, all the things that they've been through over those last three and a half years. Think about, um, think about in your own life, your own journey with Jesus, whether you're just starting out or it's been years. Think about all the ways that Jesus has been merciful to you. Think about the ways that Jesus has had compassion on you. Think about how, how patient Jesus has been through, through all your ups and downs, through the moments when you thought you got it, you thought you understood this, this new Jesus way, and then you missed it. And then you came back to him, here I am, Jesus, once again, just so patient. Think about the ways that he's been merciful and gracious to you. If Jesus had said, now that I've washed your feet, you wash my feet, how many of us would have just jumped to that opportunity? Of course. How many of us would be like fighting for place in line to be the first to wash Jesus' feet? We have so much love, so much gratitude that we want to pour out on Jesus. And, uh, thank you, Joyce. And, um, there's so much love and gratitude that we want to pour out on Jesus. And Jesus tells us what to do with that love and gratitude. He says, if you've got love and gratitude for me, pour that out on each other. Wash each other's feet. Because what we do to others, come to find out we do to Jesus. He receives that as if we'd done it to him. Washing each other's feet is washing Jesus' feet. And this is the revolution that's going to bring the empire down. Husbands, do you want to pour out love and gratitude on Jesus? Pour it out on your wife as you stand under her. Wives, if you want to pour out your love and your gratitude that you have for Jesus, pour it out on your husband as you stand under him. Parents, the love and the gratitude that you want to show to Jesus, Jesus receives that when you stand under your children when you change their diapers, when you prepare their meals, when you're thinking about what they need for the rest of the day, as exhausting as it is, as much as it wipes you out, you are doing that unto Jesus, what you're doing for your kids. Everything you suffer for them, everything you want for them, all the effort that you put in, Jesus receives that as if you'd done that for him. And children, the, the love and the, the gratitude that you want to pour out on Jesus, Jesus receives that when you stand under your parents, honoring them, supporting them, thinking about what they need. If you're a boss, if you're a supervisor, and you're grateful to Jesus, pour that out on the people under your authority as you serve them. Employees, when you stand under your bosses, your supervisors, your peers, Jesus receives that as if you had served him. Whether, and this is not about deserving this is not about if they've earned it. And that's the beautiful thing about knowing that this is unto Jesus because he is deserving of it, even if other people in our lives aren't, even if our husband, our wife, our kids, our employees, even if they aren't. 
we go, Jesus, you are deserving, and this is the revolution that's going to bring the world uh, to its knees, serving each other.